Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. They came to a, a large tree and it could have gone either right or left and he went left and uh, stumbled on the bones and originally thought it was uh, perhaps pig and then on closer examination saw a skull. Kia ora, I'm Jesse Mulligan and this is Crimes NZ Season 6. And if you're new to the podcast, Crimes NZ is where I talk with people connected in some way or other with New Zealand's most notorious crimes. To kick this season off, we're speaking with former police officer Wayne Kiley, who worked the case of 23-year-old Robert James Garwaith, whose body was found by pig hunters in the Coromandel in 1987. As police were to discover, this was not your average murder mystery but a crime with links back to the infamous Mr Asia drug syndicate. There was a team of, uh, I think, 15 or 20 detectives plus uniform support. Um, Big right deal at the time? It was. We, we had a string of whodunit murders in Hamilton at the time and in the, in the Coromandel area. So this was just an ongoing, uh, continuing uh, homicide investigations for the Hamilton CIB. Okay. Was this was this around the same time as the Swedish tourists? They came a bit later. Were they? Okay. But um, we had a series of homicides in the previous two years yeah. in, in the area, and this was this was just another one. What were the circumstances under which the body was found? <clears throat> so two pig hunters. It was very lucky to be found. Um, it was down the Tepu Corraglen Road is quite a uh, isolated dirt road. Um, two pig hunters had chased a pig and their dogs and they did, instead of going back through the bush they decided to walk up the road and it was a, it was the body was on a very steep embankment and they decided to walk up to the road rather than walk back through the bush and they came to a, a large tree and it could have gone either right or left and he went left and uh, stumbled on the bones and originally thought it was uh, perhaps pig and then on closer examination saw a skull and um, uh, called the police. So we were extremely lucky that it was found at all. Yeah. And did it immediately line up with someone who you knew was missing at the time? No, there were there were no missing person reports. Um, the victim, uh, Robert Garwith, was quite a transient and wandered around the countryside, so he hadn't actually been reported missing. Mm. So... Um, How it, was the body identified? Forensically, um, through dental records... And an injury, he had a titanium plate from a, a broken arm from a tractor accident. So eventually he was um, identified through forensic uh, dental work and, and from his injuries on his body. OK. And there was a bit of publicity around the case, which I think prompted somebody who, who noticed he was missing. Yes. Uh, Coromandel Locals, which, which he was very much part of that local community, contacted police and advised them that, you know, he'd... They, they all remembered last seeing him at a party and one of these people was on um, 
I think, Great Barrier Island and uh, contacted the police and said she had photos from that party oh. and that was the last time she'd, she'd recalled seeing him and th- there'd been no sighting of him from that point. Yeah. So, what sort of a guy was he? He was a what you call a typical Coromandel lad, born and bred in Coromandel. His family lived not far out of the, the township and um, lived all his life in the area, but also had a very transient lifestyle. It was nothing for him to go walk about for six months or so. Um, no one ever would ever hear from him. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, I think from memory he used to wear bare feet a lot. Mm. So well, a pretty harmless and offensive person that liked, liked a beer, I think, is how his dad described him to me. Yeah. In fact, uh, it turned out that he'd been um, spending a bit of cash on beer just before he went missing. Correct. He'd, on the day before he, we believe, the day of the murder, um, he'd received an ACC payout, which back then I think was two or $3,000. He'd been to um, his lawyer and got a cheque, which he took to his local bank and cashed. And so he were, I think he took out about $1,800 in cash. So he was quite flush with cash. Yeah. Went to a party and bought them a keg. Went to another party, bought them a keg. Correct. Yes. Splashing the cash. Yes. How strong a lead was this then, this person who you heard from who had these photos from the party? Well, the police, we managed, it's not like today, we had to actually get the physical photos and negatives um, from Great Barrier Island, Mm. which police cars meeting and racing up between here and Coromandel. And as soon as they arrived at the police base at Coromandel, we took them to the local camera shop and got them developed and when we started looking at the people at the party many of the senior police officers identified uh, Jennifer and Patrick Norton Bennett at the party who were who were well known to police. Okay. Let's start with Jennifer Norton Bennett because she's got a, she doesn't sound like your average killer. No but they are a team and um, Gen- Jennifer had had quite a strict religious upbringing from what I understand um, and met Patrick Norton, Norton Bennett when he was a sentenced prisoner when she was she was visiting with a church group and they fell in love and, and got married but certainly she had fallen into his criminal ways over the years following. Fallen under his spell too by the sounds of things. Yes, quite possibly. He was, he was a very domineering... Um, he was very short in stature, Patrick. Um, quite short and quite slight but a very intense and, I would say, quite domineering person. Yeah. So what was his background? Um, Patrick, I would describe as a career criminal. He he had been in trouble from a young age and um, went from uh, petty, petty offending and drug dealing. I think he started in Dunedin. And then he, he his real rise to f- uh, fame came through the Mr Asia Syndicate. He got involved with the Mr Asia Syndicate and um, travelled backwards and forwards to Australia um, with Terry Clark and Sinclair. They were all close associates and he was one of their um, standover henchmen by all accounts. And, um, you know, he was quite a a serious criminal involved in the Mr Asia environment. Um, They offended in Australia and get sent back to New Zealand. He would offend here. He would get bail and he'd disappear back to Australia. He'd get caught committing crimes in Australia and back to New Zealand. So he was he was a career um, criminal, very much involved in the drug world. And known as a bit of a heavy? Very much a bit of a heavy, an enforcer. Um, 
tales of him, in, especially in Australia, um, d- dealing out quite severe beatings to people that crossed the Mr. Asia Syndicate. So why was he in New Zealand on this occasion? I think he'd, he'd jumped bail in New Zealand and um, he'd gone to Australia. He got caught in a cannabis growing operation in Australia, got deported back to New Zealand um, and he'd been wanted on warrants, if, as I recall. So he got sentenced on cultivating cannabis and, and from an incident related to Waihee where he presented a stolen police pistol at police when they arrested him. So he he was uh, he got a sentence on those and he went to prison and around this time he'd come out of prison and basically had lost everything. That Waihee raid, by the way, pretty famous one within the Is police it, circles. It was. Um, the police posed as painters and actually painted the neighbour's house to complete the su- surveillance. And <laughs> And the neighbours got their house painted by for, for free, if I, as I recall, and they were watching him go go to his cultivation site. Um, oh wow! <laughs> and when they did the raid, um, they 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 came in through both doors, and at the same time, um, Mr. Asia himself was being detained in a local outside a local hotel. And when they crashed through the doors, he pulled out a pistol and he attempted to presented it at the, one of the detectives who managed to tackle him and, and luckily the pistol come free. Wow. Um, very lucky. Okay, so anyway, he's in jail at this point, uh, mostly in Perimoremo, but he's in Mount Eden on remand and there's an attempted prison break. Yes, that was that was quite a famous... Because um, Jennifer was a, was a getaway driver, so they were going to escape for, from prison and, as I recall... Um, she arrived early, and by the time she drove around the block to come and get them, the police were there. And um, he still managed to escape, though, and, and I think he was on the run for two or three days before there was a hostage situation out at Murawai. And um, So hang on, the notes I've got here, she was meant to be the getaway, but she'd slept in. Oh, that's right. <laughs> so she came late. By the time he, she got there, the police were already there. and they Looking were, for him. Yeah. Yeah. And found her driving around the edge of the prison wearing a wig, looking That's for her correct. husband. That's correct. <laughs> uh, and then he's found in Muriwai. Yes. And I think there was a hostage situation, and um, I think the armed defender squad had to use tear gas, and he jumped out of a two-storey window and was caught by a police dog. Um, he's what a life, eh? Yep. He was determined to get away, by the sounds of it. But as a result, I think that's when he went to prison before um, he came out prior to, to the murder. It's pretty amazing that he keeps getting out, you know? <laughs> yeah. he it's some pretty full-on stuff here. Mm, I don't think he ever got um, a very long sentence. Mm. Um, so how did he and Jennifer end up in Coromandel? So they'd been... when on a, Upon his release from prison, him and Jennifer were living in the Glen Innes area in Auckland... And during that time, they were, they didn't have a lot of money and they were known for standing over um, associates and criminals in the area, stealing stuff, taking VCRs as they were in those days and selling them. And um, they were very much involved and they were, they were certainly, and there was a lot of police pressure on them as well. So things were getting quite hot in Auckland. Um, he was so paranoid, we, we heard stories that he'd stop at a set of traffic lights and he'd run back and he'd threaten the three cars behind him because he was sure that some of them were police surveillance vehicles. Um, And 
So I think things got a little bit too heated in the Glenness area, so they decided um, to move move up to the quiet Coromandel township. Mm. Presumably it was on the police radar, though, still. The local Coromandel cop, there was only one cop in those days at Coromandel, he'd seen the vehicle driving around that they were in and he noted down the registration number, but it wasn't until some time later that he realised who he was actually dealing with, that it was actually Patrick and Jennifer Norton Bennett. And they, they, they came to a lot of attention in the Coromandel area. They were known, you know, they're famous for going to a school charity and and was a $70 entry fee or something and they threatened, um, they said they didn't get their money's worth and threatened the organisers and even though the organisers knew they, they hadn't paid for the entrance fee, they still paid them the $70 because they didn't want any trouble. Mm. So they were involved in lots of petty, petty crime in and around the Coromandel area. And how did they come across this Robert Goweth? So it was at this party, they of course got involved with all the locals um, at the both parties where he bought kegs, um, it would have been quite obvious in the, in the conversation and we interviewed a lot of those party goers that it was clearly common knowledge that Garth had this sum of money and there were rumours that he was going to get more money from ACC as well. And so what happens? What do we know? So what we know is that they took... Um, Garwith in in the vehicle to Auckland, where they picked up a, a female associate, and the female associate and Garwith and the Norton Bennetts return to Coromandel, and it's at that point that the murder happened, when when they were trying to get money out of um, Garwith allegedly for a cannabis plantation, which was virtually non-existent across from where they were living. So that, they asked him for money. He said no, and it got violent. It got violent, and he ended up dead. And, and how we... It took us quite a while to figure this out. So the investigation started as we had the car. So we knew knew the car had been involved in the... Um, His car? No, their the, car. The, the blue, it was a... I think it was a Holden Kingswood. And um, we knew who the registered owner was. So the initial investigations we were involved with was picking up the registered owner of that vehicle who lived in Auckland and was associated of theirs from Glen Innes. And uh, her name was Denise Alterator. And um, she, she said that when she got the car back, there were bits cut out of the seats and everything. So obviously we, we, our suspicions were that the pet's blood was cut out of the, the seats. So she, we picked her up one one night and we interviewed her for several hours at the Otahu police station and she gave an account that, that they borrowed the vehicle and um, that she had travelled to Coromandel by, via bus and she'd met them and um, she saw the condition of her vehicle. Um, it, also around this time we were getting lots of tips from the criminal underworld that they, they had been involved in, in, in Gawa's homicide. So they were known to be quite boastful about their criminal offending in, in the criminal element and um, the, the, that information was filtering through police channels back to the investigation team as well. It sounded like a pretty horrific attack. It was a very horrific attack. We didn't... Uh, Realise he had injuries of a um, in the skull of a, a hammer that had been um, we believed it was a ball pin hammer, one of those big heavy ball pin hammers, and the injury 
uh, and his skull was very consistent that he'd been struck um, hard in the head with that. So we, we knew his, his death was very violent. Mm. With the interview of, of Denise Alterator, we, we were concerned about aspects of her her explanation, but at the time we, we had no other evidence to, to doubt what she was saying. We also located a, uh, a, a group of their associates from Auckland who, who in, and gave various accounts of them saying that she would use acid she wouldn't. She carried um, hydrochloric acid with her, and or sulfuric acid, and she wouldn't hesitate at throwing acid on people. She, all, Jennifer, still had a reputation as well of, of carrying a big long hat pin, which she said she would have no trouble putting through someone's eye. Um, and and they they would show people the acid and the, and the hat pins and and tell various people. So we we gathered quite a bit of evidence. Um, around their activities in Auckland before they went to Coromandel, before we finally went and saw Jennifer in Mount Eden Prison. Gee, she's a long way from the Hamilton Baptist Church youth group at this point, isn't she? <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. So well, we. What was her response when you uh, put, this, put these allegations to her? So myself and a detective sergeant uh, visited her in Mount Eden Prison and she sat down and asked what we wanted and uh, we started to explain what we were there for. And um, at one stage, the conversation went something like, um, you've got pretty big balls for putting a hat pin through someone's eye. And she said, you've got pretty big balls for accusing me of murder. And, and that was basically the end of the interview. So, And Patrick Norton Bennett was very similar. He, he refused to speak to police. So we, were, we weren't going to get anything on, on a mission-wise out of... Um, out of the, uh, either of the Norton Bennett's. Mm. So you just had to gather evidence, I imagine? Yes, we continued gathering evidence and witnesses. We had other criminal... We had one criminal come forward, associate of theirs. He was reporting on bail and why he... And he'd met them around the time of the murder and had seen a, a bullpen hammer, hammer in their possession. And um, they'd made comments about using it. Um, so... We, we gather a very strong circumstantial case against um, the Norton Bennett's for the murder, and um, which led us to a depositions hearing, which um, was a pre-trial to see if we got enough evidence to send them to trial. That took place in Hamilton, um, in the Hamilton District Court, and the officer in charge, uh, Detective Senior Sergeant Bruce Raffin, was the officer in charge, and he noted that in the cross-examination of the owner of the Holden, they, the, the defence counsel had attacked her quite strongly over the fact that she hadn't got a bus to Coromandel, which we, we'd had no reason to doubt that up until that point. So at the end of the depositions hearing, we started making um, inquiries with all the, all the road transport and we actually established that she had indeed told lies and she couldn't have got a bus to Coromandel. So that then led us to think, okay, she's, she's, uh, why would she lie? And then, because there were lots of things going through our head, but because she committed perjury, we had to um, then go through the Attorney-General to get authority to charge anyone with perjury. I think it was about six o'clock one winter's evening when we got, we got told that um, we had the green light. 
myself and Detective Seniors Agent Raffin travelled to Glen Innes and we picked her up from her home address and took her to the Glen Innes Police Station. And what took place was quite a, a, a long three-hour interview, which Colin sort of ended um, very much with her breaking down and um, she admitted she'd lied and she she admitted, she didn't tell us, give us any detail, but she basically, if you'd seen a human reaction to someone who'd obviously seen someone murdered, that's what, that's what we saw. She curled up on a ball on the floor, screaming. And she actually said to me afterwards, she said, I hate you for making me remember that. Wow. That sounds like a movie scene, but that's actually the case. Eh? She'd obviously put it out of her head and you'd been the one to make her go back and relive it. Yes. So that left us with... Um, she got immunity from prosecution and basically she gave evidence that she had been recruited by the Norton Bennetts um, and taken them to up to... Um, she'd been taken to Coromandel where she slept with them. In the morning, they basically said, we need your money. They went across the road. There was, there was no um, cannabis plantation. Um, Patrick grabbed um, Garwith from behind. She threw acid in his face and then started um, hitting him with a hammer um, and they basically killed him on the side of the road in Coromandel. She was there and she was made to... By, Jennifer was quite badly injured in the, in the, in the violent struggle and um, after that, Denise was made to help dispose... Patrick dispose of the body. So. And she testified to all She this. was a very good witness and um, ended up in the conviction. Jury found them guilty? Guilty. They're both guilty. Of murder. Mm. Okay. And where are they now? I don't know where Patrick. I think he might have got recalled to prison, last I heard. I'm not, I'm not sure, but I, I know Jennifer got out and her life turned around, allegedly. But one of my ex-colleagues interviewed her over this case and um, she still disputes her innocence. You've been listening to Crimes NZ with me, Jesse Mulligan. And you can find more episodes of this series on the RNZ Podcasts page. It's also on Apple, Spotify, iHeart or wherever you catch your favourite podcasts. Follow the series so you don't miss an episode. And if you're looking for something else to listen to, you might like Gone Fishing. I'm on RNZ each afternoon from 1 till 4 with an upbeat mix of New Zealand stories from the curious to the compelling, so tune in to RNZ National.